they they used to just think that women were hysterical, and so being on your period could just have made made women go hysterical by some man and be like, "This is the menstrual derangement." Welcome back to Apod Latcha. My name is Chuck Corn. I'm joined, as always, by the great Callie Pruitt, my co-host, for the next to last episode of 2022. How did that happen? I do not know. I'm going to investigate that and get back with you sometime next year. <laughs> we have a great show for you today. We have Skylar Baker-Jordan on the podcast for an interview later. He is a queer journalist from Appalachia. We yeah. talk with him about being a journalist in Appalachia, some of the problems that the journalism and media industry are facing in the region, his identity as a queer journalist, and some of his interests in British pop culture. We throw that little tidbit in there, too. It was a fun interview, and I really enjoyed it. And then for our list, boy, we this is the last list of the year, and we're ending it with a banger. We have the top reasons to be admitted into the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. That's what it was called, not my words. It was a former quote-unquote mental health facility in Weston, I think, West Virginia. It's wild. Yeah, it was one of the hardest lists we put together like this entire year because there were just too many amazing options. We could have done them all, and there's like 50. Yeah. It, it was It's just amazing. batshit. Yeah, absolutely. But first, we actually we, we got to start on somewhat of a serious tone. Uh, so I'm actually back in Parkersburg right now, Parkersburg, West Virginia, uh, my hometown, you're in Charleston, but I'm in Parkersburg. And uh, recently it came to our attention that there is a missing person in Parkersburg that we want to amplify the story for you all in case any of you either A, haven't heard about it yet, or B, may have some sort of lead or something to this person. It's a long shot, but we want to be able to highlight it. Uh, and I'll include some links in our show notes to some articles that have the picture of this person. That way you can see what they look like, see if you've seen them around, or if you recognize them by their face. So this is in Parkersburg, West Virginia. This um, uh, 27-year-old Gretchen Fleming went missing on December 3rd. So that's about a little less than three weeks ago. Uh, Parkersburg Police Chief Matt Board said Gretchen was last seen during the evening of December 3rd and the early morning of the 4th, and they said that they knew she was last seen at the My Way Lounge, which is this, like, uh, kind of dingy little bar in town. I've never actually been to it. And then the police, I guess, were contacted on or around December 12th, so about nine days in between, to report that she'd been missing. We don't have a lot of information right now, and I will say I am cautious to share a lot of stuff just because I don't know how much of this is speculation and how much of it is like people internet sleuthing and trying to find more than there is. But what we do know is that she was apparently last seen with a guy named Preston Pierce, who used to go by the name Daryl Lott, and he was a former police officer, apparently. Uh, and the Parkersburg Police Office, or excuse me, the Parkersburg Police Department has kind of made this their sole focus right now. From my understanding, I have a couple contacts with the police department there, and they are working day and night. And so if you have any leads whatsoever, please, please, please reach out to them and uh, and let them know because this is uh, is very scary. And, um, you know, it's, it, it's a 27-year-old woman, a young woman who went missing in my hometown, a place that used to be a really, really safe place. So this is uh, really alarming. Yeah. Yeah. And we're we're not a true crime podcast, but there's like some definite fishy stuff about this particular case and Parkersburg in general. Um, we've 
you know, heard that there have been 11 people uh, who have gone missing since 2005 that don't have their cases closed. And so um, we're not saying that these are all related, but it's just kind of has a a wonky track record, um, it seems, for the area. Um, And so, yeah, we were just wanting to amplify this story, get it out there and um, see if any of you uh, have anything, know anything, because it's always, you know, all of the all of the information that ends up solving these cases comes from the public uh, being aware of what happened. Um, And so we know that uh, she left her purse, her keys, her phone. She all of that was found by the police. Um, And so they have searched uh, Preston Pierce's home. Um, we but, think it's his. I don't know if it's been confirmed to be his home. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's uh, unconfirmed reports that they were there. They were at a rental property that folks believe was his home. Um, and so, yeah, there's he's not been arrested though. Um, so we just wanted to see uh, what we could what we could put out there and sick you guys on this case because there's really no community like the Apodlatra community. That's right. And I should say, I think it, it was alleged that she was last seen with Preston Pierce slash Daryl Lott. I don't want to say that definitively. What I think the police department has been releasing is that she was uh, allegedly last seen in the company of an older male. She has not been heard from since the day I mentioned. And like you mentioned, her phone and purse were located at Front Row Sports Bar on Emerson Avenue. Uh, which is a different bar than than the one where she was last seen. Uh, and those two places are not really that close together. Yeah. And she the reports are that she was very intoxicated at the yes. time. All these things like are just bad combinations for, for this story, and it's really, really sad and awful, and I hope that they're able to find her and find her, you know, in good condition. But it's just really... um. It's kind of it's distressing and it's like this is happening where I grew up. So yeah, first of all we want to pay close attention to it, but we also, you know, it's it's scary. Yeah, it's really scary when it hits your hometown, especially when you grow up in a very small area. So I totally get it. Um I mean, I don't know. I we would be doing the exact same thing if something happened in Canton. So Absolutely. So please keep an eye out and again, uh check the link in the show notes. Like just look at a picture of this woman because you, I don't know, you may not know her by her name, but maybe you've seen her around. I guess uh, from what I've read, she used to uh, be a student at Marshall University and live in Huntington. Uh, so if you're from the Huntington area or Parkersburg area, maybe you've seen this girl around somewhere. Just anything. Um, take a look and see if, if you know her or know anybody that knows her. And let's let's see if we can we can find this person. This is a, um, it's a bad situation. Yeah. Well, that being said, we're going to pivot to a much less serious topic. So I'm going to give take. I'm going to let you all have some time to just yeah, you know switch headspace. Maybe we'll play space. a little bit of music. Maybe we'll play a little bit. Of music. Yeah, we'll we'll throw in some some of your dad's banjo music. How's Perfect. That sound? Uh, okay, so for our list this week, we're doing the top reasons to be admitted to the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. That is the name of it. I'm not making that up. I'm not calling it that. 
probably pretty outdated name at this point for an outdated facility. It was yeah. a, I believe, a mental health, in quotes, psychiatric hospital that was operated, God, until 1994 by the state of West Virginia in and around Weston, which I think is in Lewis County, if I remember correctly. So one thing to note before we start this, this is a real list. Now, there is some, uh, I guess, nuance or context to, to really include around it. It's rooted in truth. The list was compiled from a logbook of the West Virginia Hospital for the Insane, documenting admissions to that institution between 1864 and 1889, and has been published and referenced in several different books and research papers. It's also been archived by the West Virginia Division of Culture and History. And some of the context surrounding it is that among the patients who were treated at the West Virginia Hospital for the Insane for various illnesses such as dementia, mania, whatever, these entries recorded the reasons or causes to why those patients were said to have developed their underlying maladies. But anyway, regardless, uh, mental health care back in that time, the 1860s to 1880s, I think it's safe to say, I'm going to go out on a limb here, I'm not a professional, I'm not a, you know, I'm not a historian, but not that great back yeah. then. Not that great. Not good at all. Um... This list—it's just—it's so bonkers. Y'all. I think we should jump right into it, and I think you Let's should take it. the first one. This is—we're doing yes. these are not in a particular order. I don't think not at all because they're all—they're all so good. The first one is menstrual deranged. So that just sounds like a euphemism for having PMS. Am I right? Maybe I, I it's got to be something like that or that you they they used to just think that women were hysterical. And so being on your period could just have made made a woman go hysterical by some man. This is be like this is the menstrual derangement. That's that's her, her menstrual derangement again. This is like a yeah. really elaborate plot just to make a woman have babies. It sounds like. <laughs> yeah. Hurry, honey! We've got to we got to avoid menstrual menstrual derangement. <laughs> yeah, no, I I I really like the use of deranged in so many of these. It's it's definitely going to put that word back into my vocabulary a lot more. It's just such a good word, and it could mean so many different things. So I don't know. Maybe maybe I have been menstrually deranged before. Who knows? Maybe we'll make it into a shirt. I don't know. Which also, it goes straight into the next one, which is uterine derangement. So, so the, wait, wait, so, so the crime is just being a woman, because uterine derangement would just be the rest of the time. Right. That you're not having menstrual derangement. Right. So, <laughs> see, okay, it's just congrats, like, women. Yeah, this is, uh, this whole list is great for women. Um, so if you're on your period or off, either one, you're going to the Trans-Allegheny lunatic asylum sorry ladies so your only way to avoid it is basically to get a hysterectomy hysterectomy god that's a hard according to, to this list <sighs> i'm sorry ladies it's only gonna get worse from here for <laughs> you it is. Uh, men too but mostly women mostly women yeah uh next is snuff eating for two years is that exactly what it sounds like i assume so i would i would guess it's eating smokeless tobacco which <laughs> Is not advisable ever. Uh, I think you know. Ever. For two years is a long time to eat dip. It's also a very specific amount of time. Yeah, I mean, if you're coming up on one year, eleven months, and twenty nine days, like, I mean, are you good? Who's counting? <laughs> Seems like you're good. Seems like I'm all right. Well, thank God, I've only been going for four months, so. 
Yeah. Well, congratulations to you. No, snuff eating for two years. I mean, I number one, it, it, the specificity is what really gets me in this list. But number two, I just think that how does someone stay well for two years? Like how how is the, how is this person up walking around able to go to the lunatic asylum after eating snuff for two years? Honestly, you bring up a good point. If they've survived two years of just eating straight up dip, like long cut out of the can, then right. they deserve an award, in my opinion. Right. This is and this is not even modern day processed tobacco. This is 1860s. Yeah, yeah. This is like, a dirty backer, and we should say this is from the 1840s to 1860s. Yes. So this it's totally different tobacco. Probably way, way, way worse. Way worse. Less processed. Not in your fancy pantsy it probably comes in a baggie that's already dirty and has like horse shit on it this next one i think is again with the specificity yeah this is really important here seduction and disappointment the two have to go together right so you can seduce somebody as long as you follow through and you make it good for them but what if it's you were seduced and it didn't follow through and you were the disappointed one like and you were just like you You're done. Yeah, Shit no, can. you were you were in the asylum completely blue balled. <laughs> yes. Somebody from the state of West Virginia comes in right afterwards and they're like, Okay, so on a scale of one to ten, how satisfied were you? And they're like, Ah, I think I'm about a three or a four and then yeah. all right. Hands yeah. up, let's go. So seduction and disappointment. I think it's just uh it, it's I don't even I would love to know where the origin of that is right i want to know the story behind all of these because it's got to be i mean you you know that it's got to be something really interesting um it's probably just some dude that is perpetually pissed off at women and this is his way of exacting revenge because he has a little bit of power in state government that's my is this is this like 1860s incels yes yeah that feels like what i think that's exactly what this is yeah Absolutely. Um, you want to take the next one? I love the next one. So the ne- the next reason for being in the Trans Allegheny Lunatic Asylum is rumor of husband murder. Yeah, not right. actual husband murder or anything of the sort. It's just rumor of husband murder. Yes, I I appreciate this one because you know presumably you can just get away with killing your husband. They're like, ah, eh, nah, not insane, not a lunatic, but. And what I'm interested in is it are you the one absorbing the rumor or are you the one starting the rumor? I didn't even think about that or yeah, well, or it could be like you're yeah, you're hearing the rumor, not that it was you that did it, but it right. could be it could be that the rumor's about you or it could be that you're just hearing that your husband was murdered by someone. There's so many angles we could take to this. I just can't imagine a scenario. It's like, oh, hey, Darla. Did you hear that your husband was murdered? Oh my God, I am going insane. <laughs> this is a real list, yeah. No, I, I, I think that that's, that's a really interesting one. I'm also just fascinated by the guy that goes and rounds these people up. Like, who is that guy? Yeah. Who is the assessor of all of this? The seduction assessor. Right. That, is that an elected position? Could be. <laughs> I mean, the county assessor is. I mean, do you assess taxes and seduction? Yeah. I don't know. That's a great question. Yeah. At this point, we have 
really not had a single actual mental health issue. <laughs> no, no, we uh, we have not. Well, one could argue that eating snuff for two years straight may be due to one, but that in and of itself right. is not. It's not, right, right I, I, totally. It's just... It's it's absolutely insane. So the next one, I can take the next one too. Yeah, please. So first we had rumor of husband murder, and mm-hmm. this one is now shooting of daughter. Okay, again, same question. Is it you that's shooting your daughter, or is it just that the event happened? Also, again, with the specificity, why not stabbing of daughter or poisoning of daughter? You know, it's just the shooting, shooting of daughter and not sons. Shooting of daughter. And not death, like she didn't, presumably didn't die. And not sons, unless they go to war, which we'll get into. We'll get into the war. <laughs> but shooting of daughter, very traumatic. And I guess, I don't know, there must have been some lead up to this. Like maybe it had there's a lot of daughter shootings in West Virginia, I don't know. Hatfields, McCoys, I don't know. Yeah, it could be some carnage, some trauma left over from that feud. Potentially. Yes. I, I just think, and the way these are phrased is great. I agree. And this next one we would be guilty of. We would be so locked up. Politics. Oh, no. Just in general. It's just po- just the word politics. Uh, so then we're locking up who is the governor at the time because they're, they're on the hook. Yeah. Or uh, city council members, mm-hmm. mayors. Get them all in there. Yeah. This has got to be a big facility. This is a... Whoever came up with this list has a list of grudges just a mile long <laughs> And is grinding that axe day after day. Yeah, yeah. This is a very curmudgeon-y person who really, really, really wants to see the neighbors that annoy them locked in the joint, man. Because um, this, it's just politics. If you have a yard sign, straight to jail. Right, yeah. Well, but think about this, though. I mean, like, it would be kind of nice if, like, a Ted Cruz or someone existed. Then you're like, oh, you're doing politics, Mr. Cruz? Okay, well, um, I'm sorry. Uh, Got to institutionalize you. Yeah, see you later. It certainly would solve several problems in Congress. Yeah, I mean, also, <sighs> you know, we could we could use it in our benefit. We could, we could put Azinger in Trans-Allegheny. Yeah, Fuck you. Mike Azinger, man, he probably Mike Azinger's a guy who eats snuff for two years. Yeah, he's also he's also a guy that would fall into several of the next categories. I, yeah, it is. <laughs> I do agree with you with this next. This is a series, a series of them. Whoever wrote this list was obsessed with two things. I mean, rephrase was obsessed with three things: women, as we covered earlier. Horses, as we will cover soon, and <laughs> masturbation, as we will cover right now. The big three. The big three, yeah. <laughs> no particular order. Everybody's dealt with all three of them in their lives at one point, I'm sure. Yeah. You want to take the first one? I feel like th- this is actually kind of a theme, because with tobacco. Yeah, tobacco and masturbation. Again. Uh, Just that. I uh, would love some context of, like, are you doing them together? Are you using one to do the other Ooh, I didn't think of that. I thought of like a pipe smoking guy. Just rubbing just, one out? I guess. I don't know. <laughs> that's what I thought. The, puff, I puff, mean, the, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the mental imagery reading this list, we're not responsible for whatever <laughs> we think of. It's, it's, it's this list. This list would put us into the lunatic asylum just simply reading the list. 
Which this, again, gets to the confusing part to me, where tobacco, why include tobacco? If you're just against, you know, beating it, just say it. Just say beaten off is a reason, you know? Right. But they had to go one step further, which is puzzling. So this one, it's like, okay, insulting the sacred by engaging in the profane. Ooh. Because there's a lot of deeply religious people back then, still are now, some of them. And I would think that they're like, okay, what are the sins of the flesh? We got that. And then the sins of, of, well, like overindulgence or something. But Chuck, religious enthusiasm is on this list. Oh, goodness. Well. And so is, wait, there was another really crazy one that was had to do with uh, overzealousness in religion. So these people, I mean, That's at least. True. It's a good point. They want you to be the total medium of a person with absolutely nothing to be, yeah, in your purview. And I think that the people who did this wrote it this way because they wanted some carve-outs for themselves. Because as oh, you'll totally. know, as we go through this list, masturbation in and of itself, not not a cause for admission. So they put that carve in there, but we got tobacco and masturbation. The next one, masturbation and syphilis. I mean, syphilis can make you crazy, but the masturbation and. Is it because they're like not washing their hands and they're spreading it to people? I don't know. I don't even want to think of how. (laughs) I mean, you can't get it from doing the first. So uh, my sense is like they just don't want you to, I guess, pollute the world with your tainted schlong. That, that's probably that is probably their way of thinking. So just I mean, just put syphilis. Syphilis, yeah. I guess I don't. I don't know. I'm not going to try to get in the mind of these people. Masturbation for 30 years. So again, you love the arbitrariness of the the years on this. It's just so funny. <laughs> Why 30 years? Who decided that? 29 is fine. It's kind of like the rule for speeding. 29 is fine. You go for 30. Mm-mm, boy. Yeah. It's this assessor. This, pers- th- this person is, I think, the most interesting part of all of this. It's, it's the guy going around and being like, 30 years of masturbation? Check. We might have to do a deep dive on this for our Patreon to figure out who was the person that did this. I would love that. I would love that. No, I would I, too. So the next one, you guys know I love the word, deranged masturbation. I would love for the person who came <laughs> up with this list to define that for me. I know. It's just like I get like, I get like a picture of like someone like screaming running down the street. Just, just going jerking off. I mean, yes, that would be a reason. Okay. I'm with them if that's it. <laughs> Like, we're not kink-shaming, but there's something wrong with that. Right. But so, that that's, <laughs> like, that could fall under, like, public nudity or, like... Sure. You get, you know, some time in jail and a fine. There's other things <laughs> other than deranged masturbation. It's just so funny. It's such a funny phrase. Derangement. I would love to know the definition of that. First of all, these people must be, like, vanilla as fuck. They're like, you can masturbate. But you gotta do it normal. You can't be smoking smoking a pipe with it. <laughs> you can't be doing it with <laughs> with venereal disease, and you can't be doing it for thirty years. Twenty nine is fine. Thirty hands off. You can't be a woman, and you can't be a woman. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. That's kind of like the underlying 
uh, presumption for all of these. Yeah. You do know that it was during this time that women would actually go to doctors to seek treatment for hysteria because their husbands were not, you know, getting them off. And so they were very sexually pent up and they labeled that as hysteria. And there was a treatment that you could go to a doctor and the doctor would perform a, a, it was called a pelvic massage. So doctors were sex workers. And, it's this is actually this is really funny. This is actually how the vibrator got invented because doctors were perf- yeah, well they were performing this so much on so many women that they got really tired. It's incre- no, I believe it. It's incredible. And so they they developed this is all true. They they developed a mechanical device that could do the same thing at home and it was like a medical treatment and that is how the first vibrators came to American homes. They were actually the fourth electrical device that was introduced to the American household. How shitty are these women's husbands though? It's right? like, I just can't figure out what's wrong with her. She might take her to the doctor. Yeah. She's crazy. And then I think they came up with quaaludes after that too. Yeah. I'm sure. Oh my God. Well, Speaking of that, so you have deranged masturbation, of course. Right. Which it sounds like what doctors did before the invention of the dildo. The next one is suppressed masturbation, which if you look up the definition of suppressed, forcibly put an end to. So if you quit cold turkey, that is also a reason to be admitted. Right. You got to like, I guess, ease off of it. Yeah. Got to go to some counseling or something. <laughs> yeah, if you're coming up on a 30 years, you got to you got to really plan this out cuz right. you're going to have withdrawal and uh suppressed. Oh my god, this is wild to me. The pe- people yeah. spent time thinking of this stuff. Yeah, deranged masturbation, suppressed masturbation, masturbation for 30 years, masturbation and syphilis, tobacco and masturbation. What's the next one? Well, the sexual derangement. That's See that falls under the masturbation ones. Sexual derangement? I think the person who wrote this was just like, uh, saw somebody doing it doggy style or something. It was like, that's sexually deranged. Oh, probably. Yeah, yeah. They saw some sort of like old porn thing. Kama Sutra or something. And they were like- Yeah, and they were like, absolutely not in my state. Not in the mountain state that barely existed at the time. Sure. Yeah. Like, really, just in its infancy. Honestly, you know what? I'm going to chalk this all up to Virginia. I'm blaming the Commonwealth for this, and it's all because of their bullshit British names. Agreed. Side rant. In this year, 2022, in the year of our Lord and Savior Steve Irwin, is there still anything in the state of Virginia named after Lord Fairfax? I don't know. That's a really, really good point. Thank you. I I have this. I have some of the same issues with North Carolina. How are there still like? Why is Raleigh our capital? We need to rename Raleigh. Right. It's one Sir Walter Raleigh. It's like it's one thing, and I'm not saying this is an excuse, nor am I equivocating. But like, it's one thing where people are like, "Oh, don't take down the Confederate statues because of uh, my heritage bullshit." We obviously know it's bullshit. We talked about that a lot. But you'd think we ousted the Brits. We, Fuck right. Us. You'd think you we as Americans would be able to build consensus around that. <laughs> um, OK, so sexual derangement, a.k.a. Um, not doggy doing it in missionary. Right. Doggy. There you go. 
Um, and then the last one in the series, and then we have one more, is a venereal excess. What did we decide that was? Was that just having like a really a, a big endowment? I think so. Yeah, I think it was <laughs> like being hung or something. I don't know. Yeah, they had a thing against horses in this. If you're hung with a horse, I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. Uh, I mean, or, or, or it could just be like the, the assessor. The assessor is jealous. Shared a locker room with somebody and was like, "That yeah. guy's gotta go." <laughs> somebody, somebody dropped trial and He's like, ah, "I'm gonna admit you to the lunatic asylum for having <laughs> That's too big too much." Yeah, because it'll call it'll cause uterine derangement and in, in in our women. Yeah, it really will. It'll cause uterine derangement. It'll cause rumors of a, right. of a murdered husband. Really, all of these, the rest of them stem from venereal excess. Yeah, I think it was later termed as big old dick syndrome. <laughs> so, <laughs> all right, moving on to the last one, which is, is really, I think, important because it's a sign of the times. It's also, uh, I think, equine discrimination, maybe? Yeah. If I may. Kelly, do you want to do the honors of introducing the last one? Yeah. The last one on our list is Fell from Horse in War. Hell yeah. Fucking A. That sounds rad as fuck. It it's it's a good way to go crazy. It's a good way. But there were a lot of these that not, the, the the second one listed in this whole thing was also kicked in head by horse. I'm just going to say like I led with equine discrimination. I also think that this assessor person, because I think that you're right, I think we're going to call them that, Yeah, did not support the troops. Doesn't seem like it. Didn't support the troops. Because, like, you can fall off a horse and not be... This is the 1800s. Fuck, everybody and their uncle who had a dime to their name had a horse. And yeah. you bet your ass they'd be falling off those things. They didn't have, like, good stirrups or seats or whatever the hell else goes on a horse yeah but apparently this these categories are different from the war which the war is just its own category so literally the words the war is on the list so (laughs) it's its own thing we don't know what that means just like having been through it or Having, I don't, we don't know because there's also there's so many that have to do with the Civil War, like truly so many. I think this person just had so many grievances, and they just went off on a tangent. And they're like, like, what am I pissed off today about? Oh, the, fuck this war! All right, the war, sir. Are you really are you certain that that's a reason you want to admit people to the Trans Allegheny Lunatic Asylum? Yes, the war. End of story. Yeah, this is why we should Done. have CEOs. <laughs> Elon Musk yep. would be this person, I think. Kicked in head by horse uh, or the war per- or the assessor. But yes, and also kicked in head by horse. I I hope so. Um might actually knock yeah, some sense so, into him. If, if, that was good. That was good. Big thanks to David Allen Lambert for bringing this to our attention. Um, yes, thank you. Absolutely fucking hilarious. <laughs> Brilliant stuff. Love it. Uh, whoever wrote this, I mean, they must have been a great comedian. Or that's all I can imagine. Yeah. Oh, well, should we move on to announcements before we get into our interview? Yeah, let's do it. We only have a few. I want to plug our Patreon, 
patreon.com slash appodlatch. It's how we support this show and primarily finance all the wonderful things we do on it. You can join for as little as a dollar a month and get some exclusives uh, most every week. And we've got live shows that we do on Zoom. Excuse me. Hopefully in real person or hopefully in person one of these days. And uh, we're going to be revamping our bonus series and doing it on notable Appalachian people, things, and events. And uh, very excited about it. It's going to be really fun. Yeah, we're really excited about it. We've been talking about all of our plans for the new year. And a lot of it has to do with Patreon. Um, We love our Patreon subscribers. We had an amazing uh, live event last week where we got to hang out. We played trivia. Um, We had a pet show and tell. And honestly, you know, we never know when Nikki's going to bring a possum. Um, So could be at any moment. But people have... People have great pets. It's it's a good conversation about Appalachia, about the show, um, and it's a good community to be part of. So come hang out with us. We also have a Discord um, that we're going to be revamping. Uh, so we've we've got a lot going on. We do. It's very exciting stuff. And um, and actually, the assessor or whoever it is that made up this list might be part of a Patreon bonus. If we can find enough information about it, we'll do it. Another plug to join Appalachian Bookshelf. Is there anything else we need to mention on that? Yeah, so we are just, uh, we're joining forces with Read Appalachia to start an Appalachian book club. So it's going to be uh, once one book every quarter. So it's totally doable, four books a year. Um, and we are going to be talking about it. Uh, we'll have a reader's guide on Instagram and on Twitter. Uh, we're going to talk about it on the show, the book that we choose. We're going to have giveaways of the book um, and try and make it as available as possible. Uh, we'll be announcing announcing uh, our pit, our very first inaugural pick for Appalachian Bookshelf on January 9th, and our show on that book will be in March. So you'll have lots of time to read it. It's going to be amazing. If y'all know Read Appalachia, we're so excited to be partnering with Kendra on this. There's truly nobody better out there, uh, nobody more involved in Appalachian literature than her. Um, I will just say, if you are a an indie bookstore, owner. We want you to join in this effort. We're going to be having a team call soon where we bring in folks from all over the region who want to um, make sure that the book is accessible and support this, uh, support Appalachian authors, Appalachian books, Appalachian stories. Um, let us know. Reach out to us uh, and we uh, we would love to have you. Absolutely. I'm super excited for it. And then finally, award show. It's going to be next week, and the voting deadline is this Thursday. So if you're listening to this on the day it comes out or the day after or even on Thursday this week, get your vote in. That's Thursday. Is it the 23rd? Is it, am I right on that? 22nd. 20, 20, uh, let me look. Yes, 22nd. 22nd. Sorry. December 22nd. We'll put the link in the show notes. Make sure you vote. The, uh, the voting is tight. It's real tight. It's really tight. And and we've got almost four thousand votes in y'all absolutely decimating our votes from last year it's just truly incredible how many people are invested in this and we're so so uh honored to have so many incredible nominees every single person on the list deserves an award um i had someone ask me today can i vote with multiple email addresses um uh, yes you can sign up y'all make sure that you're voting for your your favorite appalachian icons i mean we've got absolute 
bangers on here like Appalachian Forager, Ash Orr, Daniel Kirk, Philip Bowen, all up for Appalachian of the Year. Um, truly incredible people. Truly, truly, truly. We love it. So check it out. And then uh, our show will be next week. Our last announcement is uh, we want to talk about our the last episode that we did in November. So if you have not listened to our episode from the last week of November, do it and do it right now. It's about the climate catastrophe that is the Mountain Valley Pipeline. Uh, to jog your memory, the Mountain Valley Pipeline is the incomplete fracked gas pipeline that goes over 303 miles from northwestern Vir- West Virginia to southern Virginia. We just had a huge win in this. Uh, we talk about it in the show, but here's an update for you. Um, we were able to rally the troops and we beat Manchin's dirty deal in the National Defense Authorization Act because of our listeners and the supporters of people like Power, um, the activists on the ground, the communities, Appalachian papaws, people of color, uh, women, everybody was part of this coalition to, to, beat this and we did and it's so exciting and we have actually partnered with power um that's spelled p-o-w-h-r which stands for protect our water heritage and rights and they're a multi-state coalition who is truly leading the fight against the mountain valley pipeline you guys know us we only partner with brands and organizations that we are very truly aligned with and we have found that power like we started this and we knew we were on the same page and then as we've gone forward in this partnership over the last month we've only been just emboldened and and more excited about our partnership with them because they're doing absolutely incredible work um together we've put together an amazing primer on the pipeline and why it's no good for appalachia and why we still need to keep up the fight we may have beat this dirty deal but there is going to be a next dirty deal so don't miss the last episode from november it's episode number 159 called the climate crisis in appalachia and pipeline politics and thank you so much for supporting this partnership yes we love power we have really enjoyed our partnership with them they're doing incredible work and they're fighting tooth and nail and have been extremely successful so that's amazing to see but anyway let's get into our interview Skylar Baker Jordan is a queer journalist from Appalachia. He writes for 100 Days in Appalachia, which many of you are familiar with, and we've featured a number of their pieces on this show before. He's an incredible journalist doing incredible work. Uh, We talked to him about his decision to become a journalist, some of his thoughts on the latest journalism, I guess, controversies in Appalachia, and uh, how his queer identity inspires how he writes. And then we, we get into a little bit of tidbits about his interest in British culture, which is kind of an interesting little tidbit to this interview. So I really enjoyed it. And Callie, I know that you did too. Skylar is a queer icon in Appalachia. So I just want to give mad props to him um, for all of the awareness that he does. We got to talk about his experience as a queer person in Appalachia. And that was really valuable to me in the conversation. Um, He rocks. We love him. We do. And we know that you'll love him too. So let's get into it. Here's our interview with Skylar. Whatever. Well, We're here. I'm, and I'm so you glad you're here. Yes. It's so exciting. <laughs> yes. I uh, have to say, 
just, I, I love you. I am a big fan. Um, and I'm really glad that we're finally getting to meet like as close to in-person as, as, as possible. So I'm just, I'm thrilled that you're on the show. Well, thank you. I love you guys and, and what y'all do. So I'm thrilled to be here as well. Uh, just a, all the love, all the oh, love. Just... It's Christmas and we're full of love. Yes, we are. Um, so we had, I wrote up like a bunch of questions um, that I had for you, but then all of this stuff with the Charleston Gazette mail went down. Do you know about I, this? I don't know about this. I, oh, that's okay, right. You're so, not on Twitter. <laughs> oh, no, shit. I left the Twitter because Elon Musk Good has for turned you. it into Dr. Evil's lair. And so I just can't anymore. What's going on? Oh that was my gosh. Probably the right decision it for was, what it's worth. But we, as a as a journalist, I feel like we need to ask you about this. So Chuck, do you want to give a quick rundown for the folks listening and for Skylar? Yes, yes, and I think this is good because we can give get your raw, unfiltered reaction. Uh, so this is what happened, and there was an AP article, and I think the Washington Post actually covered it yesterday. So that's good that it's getting some traction. We just saw it kind of take place over social media. Basically, what happened is there is a. I guess it's like a, a video interview. I don't think it's a t technically a podcast that the Gazette does. It's called um, uh, Outside the Echo Chamber. I've never seen it, but it's apparently hosted by Doug Scaff, who, in addition to being the minority leader for the Democratic Party and the West Virginia House of Delegates, he is also the president of HD Media, which is the parent company that owns the Charleston Gazette. So Doug Scaff hosts the show, and he decided to interview Don Blankenship. And again, I have not seen this yet. I'm, I'm picking this up through social media and through what the reporters have been saying. He uh, interviewed Don Blankenship, who, as we know, is the disgraced former CEO of Massey Energy, was partially responsible for the death of 29 miners. Uh, you can go back to some of our episodes and listen more about that. Anyway, apparently it was a softball interview, and he talked to Don Blankenship about his apparently upcoming book where he tries to exonerate himself from the Upper Big Branch Mine disaster, and Doug Scaff apparently said something to the tune of, well, your heart's in the right place, Don. So three reporters of the Gazette basically called this out and essentially said some variation of, I mean, I understand you need to get clicks at this paper, but why are we platforming this guy? What's the news value? That kind of thing. Anyway, yada, yada, yada. They questioned that, and then they were subsequently fired, I think, a couple weeks later. So I would love to get your reaction to this. It's blown up big time. I, I think it was obviously a huge mistake on behalf of Doug Scaff and HD Media. If he was the one that was involved firing, which it sounds like he is, and he's the president of the company, so he obviously has a say. Um, would love to get your reaction to this as someone who is a journalist and understands journalistic integrity as well as you know the politics of a newsroom. It is not the job of a newspaper or of a journalist to do propaganda for capitalists who exploit our people and exploit our resources. That is who Don Blankenship is, regardless of whether he is legally uh, liable for the deaths of anyone. He is certainly morally liable for destroying this region. Journalists have I believe a moral and ethical responsibility to speak truth to power. And sometimes that means speaking truth to our own editors. And if editors don't like that, they shouldn't be in the game of news. They shouldn't be in this profession. Um, 
this speaks to, I think, a larger issue in media right now, not just in Appalachia, but across the country um, and across the world, really, which is the corporatization of news, especially local news, um, mm-hmm. and how you have these massive, usually right-wing corporations gobbling up news stations and affiliates and broadcast newspapers in in print uh, where they exist anymore. Um, and so so that that that's an issue. Um, I, I don't know enough about what happened to really comment beyond that other than to say I'm not a fan of Don Blankenship and um, I will always stand in solidarity with my fellow journalists who, like I said, are speaking truth to power and are pointing out that it is not our job to run interference on behalf of big corporations. And, and the thing that you said that 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 ticks me off the most is when he says, I know your heart is in the right place. How do you know that? The man doesn't have a heart. Not in that sense. <laughs> I That's my opinion. That, that also, that runs to another point, which is I don't want a politician that thinks that Don Blankenship's heart is in the right place. Like, okay, you've just disqualified yourself from minority leader, uh, as far as I'm concerned, and from really serving in public office. You're not representing the will of the people. You're representing the will of big business and, and capital, which is a problem that we have. And that that goes beyond West Virginia and that goes beyond Appalachia. But um, not not a not a huge fan of, of what you just told me there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, if this is the best that the West Virginia Democratic Party can do as far as leadership, they need to be like smacked upside the head. It sounds like I hope that they get rid of him. I hope that he's no longer in leadership. But you mentioned something about the corporatization of media, and Tennessee is a great example of that. Most of the newspapers, most of the major newspapers in Tennessee are owned by Gannett, or however it's Gannett, Gannett, whatever, however it's pronounced. Like Chattanooga Times Free Press being an exception, I think they might still be independent. But it, 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 every, it seems like every week you see, um, news about this ex newsroom cutting this many people it's never about hiring more and and it's just a huge problem i just wanted to mention that since you brought it up yeah and i think that's what makes um a newsroom like 100 days in appalachia so valuable and so important is that we are an independent newsroom a nonprofit newsroom run by and for Appalachians. And we are covering the entire region from New York to Mississippi. And that's one of the reasons why I was so excited to join the team last year. It's one of the reasons why I love being a part of this wonderful team. Um, And I'm just very fortunate as a journalist to get to tell the stories that matter to the people that matter to me, which is Appalachians. And so I just wanted to give that quick plug for 100 days. Like- I love it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> 100 days is is so is just so good um and and I, I their work is so valuable i read the newsletter like every every time it comes out um oh. it's this this the best um so all right that was like a great way to kick it off with some heat um i i do though i want to give you a chance to talk a little bit about yourself and tell us a, about who you are Let's hear kind of about your background as a person, your Appalachian background, and how you grew up. Well, um, I am the descendant of Appalachian out-migrants, and I like to call myself J.D. Vance's good twin. Um, Uh, So I grew up in, um, have you ever read The Dollmaker by Harriet 
are now. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that book is about a woman from Kentucky who in the 1940s joins her husband and her family in Detroit, and they live in these really crappy duplexes. Well, um, that was sort of my family's history. Um, we moved to Dayton, Ohio, though, in the 1950s, and we lived in World War II era housing that was built for the military uh, as temporary housing, and it still exists to this day. And my sister still lives in that same development, um, and I was raised in the same duplex that my dad was raised in. Um, so we lived in a very Appalachian community there in Dayton. Um, everyone had roots down home somewhere, whether it was Kentucky, West Virginia, Tennessee. Um, and I grew up bouncing back and forth between Dayton, Ohio and Southeastern Kentucky, which is where my grandparents moved when I was, uh, about seven and is where I claim as home. Uh, the reason I say I'm J.D. Vance's good twin is because I grew up about 30 minutes from J.D. in Ohio and about 40 minutes from where J.D.'s family was from in Kentucky. So we have a very similar background as, as being the product of out-migrants. And that's one reason I have defended him to a degree about his Appalachian-ness is I kind of get it. Like, I didn't grow up entirely in the region, but I certainly grew up with the region influencing my my childhood and my identity. Like I, I definitely had that deep connection to southeastern Kentucky. Um, that's where my defense of him stops. But <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, and I, I agree with you. I so I've never really felt comfortable opining on his on his Appalachianness because I just don't really think it's my place to say. And you know, I like I, th I think our view has evolved on that. Or at least mine has. I should speak for myself. Mine has since starting this show. But I think focusing on the fact that he's quote unquote not Appalachian or whether or not he is kind of misses the broader point of his problems. Yeah, I mean, I think the only reason that book is considered an Appalachian book, he does talk about you know his his grandparents coming up from uh, the mountains. Um, but but really, it's the title hillbilly, and I think that that could speak to a whole lot about how we view Appalachians in general in the wider culture, because the book really is a Rust Belt book. You know, it takes place mostly in Middletown, which is very Rust Belt, so it's a very Midwestern book, but yet we've somehow pigeonholed it as an Appalachian book, which I think is interesting. Um, but as I said, Leslie County, Kentucky is home. I graduated high school there, went to West Kentucky University, uh, go Hilltoppers, and then moved to Chicago, spent seven glorious years living there. Uh, that's where I began my journalism career. Uh, I started writing for the Windy City Times, which was the LGBT press there. Um, and then I also wrote for, I think, God, started freelancing. And my first big break, I call, was an essay in Salon about the toxic masculinity of the fraternity that I hung out with in college. Um, and so you do not uh, seem like a frat bro, I have to say. <laughs> well, I wasn't in a fraternity. Um, I actually got blackballed, which is a story for a different day. Uh, but I still hung out with them all. And, um, you know, in, in my defense and in their defense, they weren't your typical frat bros. They were really kind of more like the the stoner fraternity. So mm -hmm. they were like really kind of laid back and cool. And some of them were like more skater guys. And they were just a great group of a great group of men. And I still keep up with some of them. Um, so uh, yeah, but I, I was a very different person in <laughs> college. Um, Weren't we all? 
Well, and I think that that's, you know, that's a very Appalachian thing, too, is I grew up very working class. And to me, fraternity represented, you know, Greek life represented sort of climbing the social ladder and social capital that I didn't have by virtue of where I was from and the background that I came from. And so I spent a lot of time really trying to pursue that American dream until I realized that the American dream is bullshit and it doesn't exist. And it's actually a nightmare if it does exist, then I want no part of it. So. Yeah. One of the things that I'm I'm really curious about that you didn't dive into there that, that Chuck and I, we think could be a really valuable part of this conversation is before you left Twitter, um, your Twitter bio divided your heart into two pieces and that was Appalachia and England and I think that a lot of people who listen to this show or have connections in Appalachia feel a similar division in their lives um whether it's because you're an ex-Padalachian like Chuck you have pieces of your heart in different places or whether you grew up not not in Appalachia but you have family here and you always you know felt like this was the place for for you um so can you just talk a little bit about that division and and how those those places, what those places mean to you? My love of England began when I was a child. Um, I, I've written about this before. There's this British soap opera that I still watch four days a week. It's on four days a week, and I tune in religiously called EastEnders. And it's about a uh, working class community on the East End of London. And to me, that was other than Roseanne. The first time I ever saw a depiction of people who lived like my family lived, Uh, they showed reruns on PBS. I had an old box TV that my parents had put in the bedroom that I shared with my brother because there was not enough room in the house for everyone to have their own room. Um, And it only got PBS. And so that was a show I watched. And there was this chain smoking grandma who was a devout Christian Um, And she just reminded me of not necessarily my own grandparents, but women that I knew. And it's funny that I mentioned that because the woman who played her just passed away this year. And the soap opera literally just aired this week, the funeral for her character. So it's kind of a full circle moment for me. Um, From there, though, England sort of became, I think, a place where as a child and as a teenager, especially, I could project a better future on because being gay in Eastern Kentucky in 2001 was not easy. So there was a level of escapism in this country that was a tad more progressive than the U.S. I remember in 2001, I kept up with Big Brother UK online and a gay man won. Um, But unlike in the U.S. where it's like the housemates vote and all that, it's very like survivor in a box. um, The public voted for the winner in the U.K. And the public voted for this openly gay man in 2001. And I thought, wow, that would never happen. And so from there, England sort of became this uh, holy grail of acceptance. And obviously, like as I've gotten older and my career has been heavily spent reporting on British politics and writing on British politics and culture and, you know, all of that. 
the, the sort of rosy picture that I have is no longer real. I mean, it's a real place, just like anywhere else. It has its good things, its bad things. Um, there are things I love about it. There are things that I much prefer America for, you know? I mean, I think we have a much more robust culture of free speech, for example. Um, but as a child, having, I think, that place was, was really important. Um, and so that's how that love developed. And it's funny you mentioned that because that love has, like I said, continued into my professional career. And now it's continuing into Appalachia because I'm working on my master's in Appalachian studies at ETSU. And if it's approved, which I think it will be, my thesis is a comparative study of the rise of right-wing populism in Eastern Kentucky and the North of England. I want to read that. Um, yeah, that's super interesting. <laughs> that sounds so, absolutely fascinating. I think it's interesting you brought up the thing about EastEnders. I've never seen it, but the depiction of middle-class families is not something that's ever been really that common in pop culture, at least when I grew up. And I think we're all vaguely around the same age. Yeah, that's and that's a depiction, you know, that has never really existed in reality for most Americans. But yeah, I mean, growing up, what did we have? We had Rosanna, right? And um, leaving aside how kind of problematic she is now it, it's important to remember that when her show came out i think in like 1988 it was groundbreaking for its depiction of working class people and, but even to me growing up i was like wow roseanne they're middle class they own their own home and it's kind of big i mean now i look at it and i'm like it's not that big but um to me growing up in a little duplex that we rented intergenerationally mm -hmm. it was huge she lived in a mansion and so um, but they struggled to pay the rent or the mortgage rather, and they struggled to pay the bills and both parents worked and it was a very groundbreaking show because even the Walton seemed middle class. And I mean, leaving aside everything else about that show, including the fact that those were not our mountains, <laughs> um, you know, the Waltons, that story didn't resonate with the Appalachian experience the way I think that they wanted it to. Yeah. Yeah, that is that's really fascinating. I I love that that's part of your story that you could find something to relate to in another culture and another place. Um because I think I think a lot of people can can relate to that and and will relate to that. Um switching subjects just a little bit. Uh you are a leading queer voice in Appalachia. Um Am I? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> As a queer Appalachian, I think you are. Wow, um, that's really humbling. Thank yeah, you. Oh, yeah. Um, so you've, you've also been key to elevating other queer voices, which I think is really important in a lot of the work that you do. For you, what was it like? You kind of hinted at growing up queer in Appalachia that it wasn't the easiest, but, you know, what was that experience like from from the time that you understood yourself to kind of when you were able to self-actualize? Well, I knew I, I didn't have the words for it. And I think this is a very common sort of LGBT experience. Um, I didn't have the words for it, but I knew I, I liked boys at a very young age um, in a very innocent way, like the boy next door would give me butterflies when I was in kindergarten or I had a crush on a waiter or something, you know, very innocent sort of, you know, ways. I didn't really 
think much about it until I hit puberty and, you know, you start having all these feelings. And at that point, it was just very much like, oh, boys do it for me, not girls. Oh, okay. And I, I, I credit that to two things. One is growing up where I grew up in Dayton, Ohio, um, in particular um, in the Mad River Local School District, which has a very diverse student population by dint of being one of the school districts that serves Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And so I grew up in a very diverse school um, with, and when I came out in Ohio, I was not the first or the only LGBT student in my high school. Uh, I did my freshman year in Ohio. And so that made it a lot easier. The second thing is I always say that the only time God was mentioned in my house growing up is when he was followed by damn it. So, you know, my <laughs> my family was not religious. So I didn't have that baggage. And Mine my was, family... but they still said, God damn it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so my family was very supportive, um, especially, you know, I came out to my parents on Monday, September 10th, 2001. So the next day put a lot of things in perspective pretty quickly. Um, so, you know, that helped. What made it difficult was when I moved to Kentucky about six weeks later and Leslie County was a lot less accepting at that time. And I say at that time because Appalachia is part of America. Right. And so we have moved with the times here the same way that the rest of the country has moved with the times. We may not be as, quote unquote, accepting as maybe New York City or Los Angeles or San Francisco. But there are other ways I think that we do better than than those places. That's a conversation that we can have. But I think it's important to remember that the entire country in 2001 was in a very different place on LGBT people. And I say that because so often we use this as a way to stigmatize Appalachia. And I don't think that's fair because I can't guarantee that I would have had a different experience had I gone to high school in rural Nebraska or rural upstate New York or the Inland Empire in California. So I think that we really need to understand that so that we're not just playing into this trope that Appalachia is this horrible, bigoted place. It was very difficult for me coming of age as a gay kid uh, here in the early 2000s. Would it have been easier anywhere else? Who knows? Um, but I was bullying. Every day was a crucible, a daily crucible of homophobia, uh, every slur you can imagine, some that were more creative than others um was hurled at me teachers really didn't intervene the way that i think they should have um the principal and the administration really didn't know how to handle me and i didn't see what the big deal was i just wanted to be me i just wanted to be left alone and that's kind of where i am today i still just just leave me alone <laughs> let me be me leave me alone i don't need i don't care you can have your beliefs they don't bother me just just stay out of my way yeah. Um, but at the same time, I had some amazing girlfriends, you know, that really supported me. Um, I still keep in touch with on Facebook. I still think the world of, and I had a lot of the same coming of age experiences that everyone else had, you know, I went to prom, we went to parties, we drank and our parents didn't know, or if they did, they <laughs> turned a blind eye. My grandma still can't figure out that time I came in stumbling up the stairs, what was wrong with you that night? Oh, grandma, too much rum. 
Um, but, uh, you know, <laughs> so we had fun and it, it wasn't an entirely miserable uh, time, but it was a traumatic time because of the bullying I got. But there has been some healing. Getting a master's in Appalachian studies has definitely been a healing experience because it's helping me to process a lot of my complicated feelings about this region. Um, but also there was a time maybe a year or two ago, one of the worst bullies that I had in high school reached out to me on Facebook to apologize. And wow. and that that was really touching. And um, I didn't really think that he needed to do that because we were kids and I don't necessarily believe in holding things kids did as kids against adults. You know, I mean, it was 20 years ago, but I, I appreciated it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really um, that's really amazing that 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 he did that. I mean, I I've had similar experiences just because you know I was I was the nerdy weird girl in school and had bullies all the same and you know, and I think that it's kind of part of it's more for them honestly like growing and learning about who they are and and who they don't want to be anymore and atoning for that I think a lot of times than it is about if it's hurt us um so yeah, yeah I that's really that's really great Chuck did you have something that you want to add? oh I mean nothing important I was just gonna say I only hold financial grudges against kids from like middle school <laughs> and high school which is why I still know that Chase Moore owes me $5 from seventh grade when I loaned it to him for a honey bun from the snack bar. Several honey buns, in fact. Hey, um, pay up with interest. I Look, if I charge interest on that, it might be like a student loan payment at this point. I don't know. There you go. I don't know. Anyway. I, th- I just had this thought. You all were the same age. Did you all sell pixie dust in bags when you were in like middle school and high school? Or was that just a our school thing like the drug or like the candy no the candy but apparently there is a drug called pixie dust so our school had to like crack down on it like when we were in like sixth grade because we were on the playground selling bags of like the little candy sugar i don't know i didn't that memory just came back to me i was like somebody probably owes me money because i gave away a lot of pixie dust the candy, not the drug. <laughs> I didn't. I don't think anybody sold pixie dust. I yeah, think kids no. would have have challenges to see who could snort the most of it. Oh my god! I never participated for. Yeah, one. I, I must have had different dust. friends. Um, speaking of, I feel like that is like a show of masculinity. So, one hundred days in Appalachia just recently did a piece, uh, an amazing piece on masculinity in Appalachia um, that we covered a couple of months ago. And so, I it, it kind of looking into that and reading that piece by one hundred days really changed our conceptions of what it means to grow up being a man in the region. Um, and so, I was wondering, what did mass masculine look like growing up to you and how has your conception of masculinity changed that's a good question um i think masculinity looked first of all masculinity looks very different depending on class depending on race depending on culture for me masculinity was probably epitomized by my dad who came home covered in filth and grime from working on my dad. I can't tell you exactly what it is he did and still does um, because I don't have the words to articulate it. It's like some sort of engineering thing. 
Um, but uh, he would essentially be the guy who fixed the scales who that they weigh the big semis on. Ah. Um, so he would have to go down into the pit and he would be covered in like oil and gunk and stuff and like very manual labor. Um, and that kind of was masculinity to me. You know, he was very gruff, very reserved. He didn't spend a lot of time with the family. He worked very, very, very hard and very, very, very long hours. Um, but he would come home and he would go to bed at 7 p.m. and he would wake up at like 4 a.m. And so we hardly ever saw him. Um, and when we did, he was, I mean, my dad and I have a really good relationship now, but my dad growing up, I, and I've told him this, I was like, I, I got the impression that you were not a very happy person. And so masculinity was misery. Um, going into high school, masculinity was divided into two categories in Appalachia to me. There was the guys who were wearing sort of the steel-toed boots and the camo pants, and they were going hunting every day. And then there were the 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 boys who were maybe the sons of the local judge or, you know, the principal or whatever. You know, the sort of middle-class boys who were wearing Abercrombie and very well put together and... Uh, so there were two different types of Appalachian man that I saw presented in my high school. And I knew which one I wanted to pursue. And that was the sort of preppy middle class one. And so at that point, masculinity became about power and not necessarily power in interpersonal relationships, but political power, social capital. Um, and it wasn't until I got into college where I minored in women's studies that I really began to unpick what masculinity means in a structural sense. Yeah. Um, and I got to realize like, oh, all of this is really just about power and it's about exerting dominance or submission and all of this. Um, I've come to a more nuanced position now, which is there is a masculinity and then there is a toxic masculinity and masculinity is not necessarily always toxic and how that is constructed can vary from person to person. And I don't know that I have the words to articulate it at this time. I think that's an essay I should probably work on, <laughs> but I think that that, that, um, I, I interactive documentary that we did. I don't know. I don't know necessarily what you would call it. We do some really cool, innovative stuff at 100 yeah. days. And I'm not yeah. always sure how to explain it. I have to look at Ashton, who's our uh, editor and be like, okay, so, so what are we calling this? Like, I feel like, I feel like interactive documentary is an accurate it's way of framing yeah. it. Cause it, yeah. it was really, really cool. And still, is, yeah, it, it was a really it. cool. And I think that what they did brilliantly is, is depict how different boys in Appalachia are, understanding and embracing their masculinity in ways that are wholesome and and not toxic and i mean everyone from we had uh, a boy who was from a devout christian family um we had trans boys we had um a boy who was playing i think high school football um, it, it was just, it was a wonderful documentary. And I think it showed that, you know, masculinity doesn't have to be toxic. It can be about, um, protecting people. It can be about, um, you know, having, you know, I don't know. I don't, I don't know how to explain it really, but it can be wholesome. It can be kind. 
And that being those things that we typically don't associate with men, it's really hard for me to articulate what masculinity is. It's easier for me to articulate what toxic masculinity is, but I think articulating what a sort of more wholesome masculinity is, is hard because we're still developing it. You know, we're, we're still, and, and there are some wonderful men out there who are blazing this trail, um, and, and really trying to unpick what it means. And I I think that we're going to, especially Gen Z, they, they really seem to be embracing a much more, um, nuanced and wholesome version of masculinity. And I, I just really tip my hat to them. Um, even as I don't necessarily understand all of their lingo, I recently learned that they use slay in a very different way than, I mean, it's basically like they're staying in for cool. So I was like, Oh, okay. I get it. I'm just used to like slay queen, you know, I'm gay. We have, (laughs) that's the only context (laughs) I ever heard in it. So, but yeah, I think that, I think that we're still unpacking masculinity and trying to divorce it from its toxicity. But I think that's really important to note though, especially when having these conversations with sort of, what do they call them? Normies, Um, you know, that it's okay to be masculine and and, and masculinity doesn't have to be toxic. And When we say toxic masculinity, we're talking about a very specific form of masculinity that I think uh, is epitomized by there's this be a man box. Um, I can't remember. I think it's Kibble. I think it's Paul Kibble who developed it, a sociologist. And it's about masculinity being dominance and, you know, um, dominating women and being a provider and being stoic and repressing your emotions. And that's the masculinity I sort of understood, whereas I am very demonstrative. My heart is worn on my sleeve, um, very sensitive and very compassionate. And those were not always traits I associated with being a man. Now I do. And any man that I date, any man that I befriend, I want to have those traits because I think those are good human traits to have. I think that's so yeah. important. And I think, too, it's interesting when talking about masculinity with how much more nuanced and I think open-minded the concepts of just gender and gender identity are today, at least for a lot of people. And obviously there's people that aren't, but um, you know, when we talked about it and talking about the discussion about like what it means to be a man and whatnot, you know, you'll have your people that are like, what, what's the definition of a man and a woman, <laughs> all that bullshit, you know, um, Matt Walsh type garbage. But Uh, I I think it is really interesting and I think it's a really good time in our sort of national discourse to have that discussion. I think it makes it really that much more powerful and interesting because a lot of times when growing up, the concept of masculinity and being a man, at least for me, was never associated with anything but sort of a straight white male. And that's just not the case anymore, which is good because it's, it's not limited to that. And so I, I think it's really interesting. I think what you have done at 100 Days and just what 100 Days has done in general has been really excellent on that topic. And I was also, when I learned about 100 Days, I was very pleased to uh, then find out that it wasn't just going to be around for 100 Days and then disappear because that's what I initially thought. So I was very happy. Well, I think that's that what they initially thought. And I was not around at its inception. I've only been with 100 Days for about a year now. But my understanding is 
is, and Dana will have my hide if I get this wrong, but I think that it was envisioned as just a, a, a website that would track the first 100 days of the Trump administration and see if he kept his promise to Appalachia. Spoiler alert, he didn't. Um, oh, damn it. He didn't? Shit. Oh, no, I know. Just, I know. Shocking, right? Shocking. Right. Donald Trump broke a promise. But um, the response they got really showed them that there was a need for a website like this. And I think that there is a need. Absolutely. And I think that websites like 100 Days in Appalachia really show a way forward for, for local and regional journalism, which is a nonprofit model where we focus on quality, not quantity, because we might not be able to replicate a daily local but we can still provide targeted coverage to our region by and for the folks who live here. And I think that that's, you know, that's a model that can be replicated, not just in Appalachia, but uh, really across the country. I mean, there's no reason you couldn't have 100 days in the Great Plains, you know? Um, so I, I agree. And I think, uh, I think we're seeing more of that too, just in general, like, I mean, for example, in your state of Tennessee, um, the Daily Memphian and now the Nashville Banner, which is relaunching from a previous location, those are all nonprofit newsrooms. And I think we're seeing a transition that Mountain State Spotlight's an example in West Virginia. And I think it's good. I think it's a step in the right direction. So um, I think the work that 100 Days is doing is really, really important and extremely valuable. So we're happy that uh, they're doing what they're doing and that you are with them. I just want to plug also Black by God, the West Virginian mm -hmm. uh, with Crystal Good. Yeah. Uh, doing really great work up in the mountain state, uh, covering a, a really neglected and ignored community there, which is black West Virginians. So, yeah. And a community that a lot of people outside the state and inside don't realize even exists, which is exactly. Sad. So absolutely. Definitely. Uh, a extremely important and vital and necessary publication as well. Skylar, thank you so, so much for coming on the show. We're thrilled to have you. I think that I think that a lot of people are going to get a lot of a lot of, of of personal relation to what you said. And I think that it's it's important that we had you on. So I appreciate absolutely. you coming. Well, on. I appreciate that. And um, I'm going to ask you all for a small favor here. Uh, <laughs> I guess. The other day I was on Times Radio in London discussing an essay that I wrote about Harry and Meghan. And they asked me where I wrote. And as I was going to answer, my grandmother called. And um, I got flustered and I didn't say the name of the publication I wrote that essay for. Uh, so I wrote that essay for the Water Cooler HQ, which is a wonderful website that does deep dives onto into television. And I've written for them for a couple of years now. Um, it's a startup. They really need views. Um, if y'all could just give them a quick plug and go read my essay on the differences between American and British culture and how we project those differences onto Harry and Meghan and, and just make sure that we, we get them because I think they're a little cross at me right now. And I completely understand because... Yeah, my and my mamma knew I was doing that interview and <laughs> at that time and she still called to tell me, You have a letter here. I was like, I don't I don't need 
you don't need to be <laughs> oh, my personal. Oh, that's such a mammoth thing to do. And yes, we will absolutely. I know. I've been watching my phone, waiting for her to call during this interview, just Amazing. because I'm like, it's going to happen. And if she does, I'll just put her on speakerphone and let you guys interview her too. So. Absolutely. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Skylar, for coming on and uh, come back anytime. show ran long today so we're going to skip the under the radar segment but we'll be back next week with our award show so make sure you don't miss out on that and make sure you vote if you haven't voted already thank you love you we'll see you next week